Hi everyone, this is Jacob. I just have a few quick points I wanted to mention before we get into today's episode. One is that I just wanted to tell all of our listeners we've been doing a lot of reviews of specific pieces. We've gone through the Ring Cycle, we've gone through the Mahler Symphonies recently, and we've got much more content coming down the pipeline on this podcast, and a lot of that will be geared to more of our beginner listeners. I know we've been delving a little more deeply into some of the breaking down some specific pieces, but here at Attention to Detail, we're mainly about the beginning listener, people with no background knowledge whatsoever, and so we're going to get back to examining our four fundamental techniques, ways of listening to music that just require attention and focus, and so keep an eye out for that. Another thing to keep an eye out for, which is which is coming shortly, is we're going to be launching a blog here at Attention to Detail on our website, and I'm very excited about that. I think it'll be a good resource for people to go and and learn a little bit more about how to listen to music, some suggestions for techniques, interact with other listeners. So I'm very excited. That's just something to keep an eye out for in the next uh, month or so. And finally, I just wanted to mention for today's episode, uh, we are joined by a very special guest, Hannah Reffitt, my co-host. And we tried to do a slightly different type of recording where she was using a mic with us instead of calling in. We're, of course, not able to be together during COVID. But if the audio quality is a little iffy at times or different from what you're used to here, I apologize for that. This was some new software and we gave it our best shot. Hopefully you can hear what she has to say, what I have to say, and the great music of Siegfried Act 3. So without further ado, here is our episode, Musical Spark Notes, Siegfried Act 3. attention to detail. This is Jacob joining you as always and we're trying out something new today. I've got a special guest joining me, uh, my co-host on this podcast joining me back again and I think today we have figured out a way to remotely record this podcast with Hannah not calling in but on a microphone. Uh, It's just as good as in studio so we're all experimenting here, but Hannah, I, I think hopefully you should be coming through. How are you doing? Good. Hello from the age of uh, Corona. I am talking to you from an actual mic. I feel very legitimate. Um, you sound yeah. very legitimate. I'm, I'm in love. This is really cool. Yeah, this um, is exciting. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. How are you? I'm good. What, what's been going on with you? update all of our listeners yeah um i have moved in with mom and dad for the foreseeable future just with everything going on um but things are good things are good with me taking it a day at a time um you know the world is pretty crazy right now but yeah no legitimate complaints i mean if this virus wanted to go away that be that would be great with me um but yeah things are good That sounds like pretty much exactly the same with me, so (laughs) nice, awesome. Well, we are here to talk about, you're jumping in with us here at Act 3 of Siegfried, and you mentioned to me off-air that you've looked a little bit at the the ring, you've listened to some of our previous breakdowns, and so maybe uh, you're kind of joining us in the flow of of where we are, but I think you'll also be a helpful presence on the podcast to uh, demystify some of the many confusing names, the many confusing terms that we are dealing with when breaking down this massive uh, opera, The Ring Cycle. So 
Um, any initial... I, I'm just curious off the bat. Uh, we're going to slightly shorten or skim over a little bit more of this act because um, a lot happens, but but not not as much that we necessarily need to highlight. But I'm also curious to hear from you, Hannah. So, like, general impressions, any Wagner that you've listened to or in just like getting familiar with this work in general what's your what's your impression of Wagner or the ring cycle as it compares to other stuff that you've heard or or looked at Hmm. yeah I mean I loved your intro episode on all things Wagner with the ring cycle um and my exposure to the ring cycle thus far has been a uh, performance that the ISO did. I forget when this was. It was. It's been a few years now. Um, but we did a, of course, a shortened version. And I remember then talking about light motifs. So um, when you spoke about it during the intros, um, that rung a bell. And actually, I was thinking about like how awesome the concept of light motif is, and just what a ginormous um, work the ring cycle is by Wagner. I mean, I have a, uh, childhood love of musicals. So when talking about Wagner ring cycle and that it's, um, all sung through and all the different character developments, um, that, that childhood love of the American musical that love sort of kicks in for the ring cycle. So I'm very excited to get more into it. And I think I mentioned this the last time we podcasted together that I'm trying to learn German. Um, and this has just kicked up that desire to, to learn German and go eventually, if I can get tickets ever, um, to go see this perform live in, in, in German. I think that would be absolutely incredible. Oh, yeah. That would be, I mean, that would be phenomenal it's uh definitely I, I would i'm not a particularly good german speaker myself and i think there's a little bit of um something that's lost in translation and dealing with the ring cycle because uh at least wagner fancied himself as something of a poet and i think when we read the ring cycle in english at least for me it comes across often as somewhat clunky and um it, just difficult difficult to process and read and I'm curious if some of the poetic uh, beauty you know I don't know that Wagner was a particularly good writer to be honest but in any case it would be nice to uh, confront the work in its original German so that's that's a problem that's, that's a project that I'm slowly but surely undertaking you, you'd think that with all this extra time um, that we all have myself included that I would learn a new language or something like that but alas I have not done that yet but I'm glad you're uh, getting after it learning some German that's 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 good to hear oh it's not been successful thus far I mean I, I, I know a few things yeah but this has definitely uh, ins- further the inspiration and the desire to do it and honestly I mean yes it's helpful to know the language but what's so helpful about the way that Wagner chose to write was his use of the leitmotif. So once you're able to recognize a leitmotif, you sort of know it just gives you more clues as to what's going on in the story. 
and not having to know the language. It certainly helps to know the language, but if you, you know, use the tools that we've set out in this podcast of recognizing, oh, well, that, that sounds familiar and that's been replayed. Is that a leitmotif? Maybe. So maybe that's a significant um, key to help you understand what's going on in, in the piece. Yeah, I do think from my own experience, just listening to a lot of Wagner in the last month, when you get them in your ears and you start kind of um, listening to longer stretches of Wagner, you're right. You start understanding kind of the music itself and it's really telling you a lot just through these leitmotifs. So it's an excellent point. So maybe we'll dive right into the uh, act three of Siegfried here for our, for our listeners who might remember. In act two, Siegfried has slain the dragon Fafner. Fafner was this giant who originally came into possession of the ring and Siegfried, uh, on instruction from, from Mima, from Wotan, he's being acted on by all of these forces that are seemingly out of his control. He's just this kind of uh, innocent, naive hero. He went and slayed the dragon Fafner and so now Siegfried has the ring of power, this the the title item of this entire cycle. And he is now he was chasing after this this woodbird whose thoughts he could understand, and this woodbird is leading him to the rock where our other main character of these last two operas, Brunhilde, has been left by her father Wotan to um, await a hero. She's surrounded by this circle of magic fire. And Wotan said, only someone who knows no fear can walk through this, this circle of fire. And as we've seen from Siegfried previously, uh, he was supposed to learn fear when fighting the dragon, but that didn't scare him at all. He slayed the dragon, and so we know he is the one who knows no fear. So that's where we're at. Hannah, did that sound like gibberish, or does that make some sense? Nope, it, it lined up exactly with my Wikipedia read. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad. I know these are a lot of uh, complicated characters and weird names to remember, but let's get right into it, and we hear this opening music that we'll play now, and in this first scene, we're immediately introduced to the leitmotif of a character who's going to come back on the scene in this first scene, the character of Erda. Erda is the goddess of earth um and if you remember she is also the mother of the valkyries like brunhilda uh one of votan's many i think she's married to votan but votan also has many mistresses but she is technically married to votan so she's going to appear here as well as votan who you'll remember from earlier is disguised at this point as a wanderer of sorts so here is the opening of act three of Siegfried. So there's our first uh, first thing that we happen to hear there. We hear the motif of Erda and the one that goes like this. I'll play it for us. 
And then we hear a variant of kind of Wotan Spear, which we've also heard many times. So we're getting introduced to this music. What are your, any impressions on uh, the opening of this act, Hannah? Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, this is, what I sh- failed to mention actually was that this is the, um, these are the first notes that Wagner wrote. I mentioned this at the end of the last episode, but these are the first notes that Wagner wrote after taking a 12-year break from working on the rain cycle. And so what we want to look for, actually, and start listening for are potential differences in kind of the quality of writing or the type of stuff that he's writing here versus what we've heard thus far. Because up till this point, it was all written in the 1850s, and now we're in the very late 1860s. Uh, he took this huge break, and so there, I think there might be some stylistic differences from earlier Wagner, so we can keep an ear out for that. So what did he do in those 12 years? What did he write? Yes. Yeah, and so what he did actually, he write? He stepped away from the ring cycle. I mean, there was a ton of stuff going on in his personal life. Um, he moved around a bunch and eventually got this big patron of all of his work, Ludwig II of Bavaria, so he ended up relocating to Bavaria. He was in Switzerland in the late 1850s when he stopped writing. Um, but he also just like, I, I don't know exactly why, but he took a break and he wrote two more complete operas in the interim. He wrote Tristan and Isolde, which is like a huge, huge piece in the history of music. And he wrote Meistersinger von Nuremberg, uh, another one of his big operas. So. He just, like, took a break for some reason, was doing all this other stuff, and then returned to the the ring cycle. Not totally sure why, but... I'm all for it, especially yeah. after all of this quarantine stuff. It's like, okay, I can I can take a break. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> 12 years is a long time, though. 12 years is a long time. I was saying on the previous podcast, I mean, when I think back to... I, I think we should listen for some uh, differences in, in the music because if I think back to the type of person that I was when I was 15 I was a very different <laughs> person than who I am now I think so it probably writes slightly different music as well maybe part I of hope that you're different is, it's a different it's a different point of life Wagner was you know uh, late 40s to, to late 50s early 60s but even so 12 years is a very long time in any case, so we, uh, we hear Erda's motif, and then uh, we hear one more, I want to play one more little clip that we hear towards the end of this introduction, because there's two more kind of important motifs that come back in this act a lot that we should notice, so here's that other clip. So there we just heard, there were a couple motifs that I want to point out. First we heard the sleep motif. It's this kind of sinewy scale that goes down. It sounds something like this. And then we heard, right after that we heard the motif of 
Destiny or of Fate, the one that goes like this. And so we know that, uh, we hear that fate motif all the time that, that suggests to us that bad things are going to happen effectively. So in any case, um, we get into the action of the, the scene here. Votan, or who's dressed as the Wanderer, he wakes up Erda, and we hear a lot of this Erda motif. And he's, he says uh, he's come to her for wisdom, She's, she's given him a lot of wisdom before. She doesn't know who he is, though, because he's still in disguise. And so she's kind of confused. She asks why he didn't go to Brunhilda, who's a better source of wisdom, according to her. And then Wotan recounts how he punished Brunhilda. So at this point, presumably, Erda can figure out who this wanderer is. Um, it's a weird scene, actually, to start the act, because... Uh, nothing really happens. He just kind of recounts what's already happened. This is a, a trademark of Wagner, is to have these long scenes where he basically just recaps what already happened. And so we're going to skip through a lot of this. Um, but there's one clip that I want us to listen to. Um, important line, when Wotan says, The Eternal's downfall no more dismays me, since their doom I willed. What in my spirit's finest anguish, despairing once I resolved, glad and blithesome, freely I bring now to pass. See, Hannah, this is part of what I was talking to you about, the problem with uh, uh, hearing Wagner in English. It makes basically no sense. Yeah, I think a lot of it probably has to do with the sentence structure. I'm talking like I know everything about German, but I do not. I don't even remember half of the numbers up to ten. Anyways, um, <laughs> um, it, but I would say it's probably because of the sentence structure. But yeah. it would be, oh, I got it. After this, I'm going back into my Rosetta Stone. <laughs> that's good. That's good. A little Duolingo. That's what I, I use Duolingo. But do you have a Rosetta Stone of German? I got a lifetime membership at a discounted rate. I forget how much it was, but it got I got to a slump with Duolingo that I was, oh, and then I was doing Duolingo, and then I was like, I got into a slump, and I was like, all right, let's uh, commit to Babbel. Got into a slump with Babbel, and I was like, let's just throw money at this issue. So I'm go. doing it with Rosetta Sometimes Stone. Works. Well, lifetime membership is legit, so there you go. Highly recommend. All right, yeah, maybe I'll do that myself. So here we go, where where he says the translation in normal English is that Votan is no longer worried about this downfall of the gods. He's going to take his hands out of the situation and leave it to Siegfried, who he thinks is this noble hero, and he's not concerned anymore. So let's listen to uh, this moment when he says this, this important line.
so important moment there, a little bit of a long clip, but a lot happens there. Uh, we hear the Erda motif. This is a cool, cool element of, of Wagner's technique. Hannah, tell me if you, uh, tell me if this is, is something that makes sense, because uh, I'm curious if this makes sense. But we have two motifs here, the Erda motif and then the downfall motif. The Erda motif sounds like this. The downfall motif sounds like this. Now those happen to effectively be inversions of each other. One goes up, one comes down. Is that a perceptible thing to you? Yes. You should have put me on the spot and I would have said, oh, that's an inversion. Would you have said that? Is that Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, bragging about no, myself. Of course. <laughs> Excellent. No, I like it. Uh, maybe, well, be careful what you wish for, because maybe I'll put you on the spot again. Oh, no. Um, no, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, excellent. I'm glad we can hear that, because um, what we get from that is that, and we remember that Erda motif is also very similar to our Rhine motif. They're like polar opposite forces. You have the forces of the Rhine and Earth and what's created this it set all this stuff in motion, and then we have the downfall of the gods, which is upcoming. We hear that, of course, when Wotan talks about the downfall of the gods. And then we hear this other very important motif that it's, it's odd that we're introduced to a new motif this late in the cycle, but we hear a new motif that we've never heard before right at the end of this clip that goes like this. And that motif is we can call it Siegfried's love or, or something like that, but it's this new motif for Siegfried and kind of for Brunhilde um, as he alludes to, he says, I leave to the Velsung that's Siegfried, gladly my heritage now. So he's like taking his, his foot off the, the gas pedal, he's leaving it to, to Siegfried, and that's the motif that we hear right there. So we hear a lot of Siegfried's motif here, even though he's not actually on the scene. We hear a lot of Siegfried's love motif. Um, they're all, they're, he's kind of talking about how Siegfried's going to come and save Brunhilde. He's going to leave Valhalla to them. Um, he's a little misled in this scene, and we're going to see why this is not all actually going to come to pass. But he has this big romantic aria about uh, how he's going to leave all of his, his great godly works to... Siegfried and Brunhilde. So let's move on to scene two. Hannah, I was actually going to ask you a question that you were mentioning earlier because I think you pointed to something that uh, I've mentioned, but we, we don't touch on all the time, which is that I just used the term of aria, but actually one of the key uh, elements of Wagner's style is that it's through composed and it's constant singing, as you mentioned. Are there... Um, are there musicals that you know of that are like sung through? Is that a is that a thing that happens, or are they all speaking and then song? Um, you know, I'm sure there are some. I just can't think of. I mean, Hamilton is almost entirely sung through. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I guess probably that's right. That's probably the closest one. I would probably guess Sondheim probably did something very close to sung through. 
Um, but when I listened to the intro, I was trying to think about if I knew of any or was deeply familiar with anything completely sung through. I'm sure that there are. I have not witnessed or can't think of any off the, off the top of my head that are. Hamilton's probably the closest that I'm familiar with. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was just because it was really, and that goes to show in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty revolutionary change and maybe it doesn't seem like that to all of our listeners. Like, oh, okay, what well, he did this thing in opera, whatever, but it's like imagining a musical that was totally sung through. I think that would, that would be pretty revolutionary. And similarly, opera up till this point had effectively had recitatives and arias. And recitatives were effectively the moments, like in a musical, where the action stops and uh, people speak. Mm. Now, Wagner faced an interesting... Part of the reason why we're doing these spark notes is that Wagner... I don't think he fully effectively did this, and I'm not sure that anyone could fully effectively do this because um, I'm not sure if if in your listens to any of this stuff you felt this way, Hannah, but um, a lot of Wagner's music when the plot is getting moved along is the music that I've been cutting because I find it to be the music that's less effective. The music that's really effective is when the plot stops for a second and there's either an orchestral interlude or something, but he was trying to avoid these moments of total kind of static music or the absence of music when the plot is moving and also avoid these moments of static plot when the music is moving in in a way. Um, But I don't think he fully, fully succeeded in doing that because it still is the case that that in moments of plot motion, uh, the music takes a secondary role. I don't know if you've you felt that way at all, but there are some great moments and some some less good moments potentially. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating that he chose. He was so adamant about doing it that way. It's just it's mind blowing to me that all these musicians, both operatic singers and musicians in, in the pit, are you don't really get a break. I mean, that's what's great about the musical construct in opera too, is that the traditional sense is we sing a song, we get to stop and have a little scene, and then we can regroup and just, you know, completely blast the audience with all this noise. But to do it completely fluidly for hours on end, oh my God. It's it's kind of crazy and it really is... Uh... Uh, we haven't mar- remarked on the performing of these works a lot in these podcasts either, and it's an excellent point. I mean, for the orchestra, this is insane. And he basically invented new roles of... There's such a thing now called a Wagnerian soprano and a mm-hmm. Helden tenor, which are people who specifically can sing these incredibly taxing uh, endurance roles that go really high. So it's an excellent point, and I think we should keep our ears out for that as we're cutting so much of this stuff anyway. So in any case, we're on to scene two and Siegfried flies on the scene. He's following this wood bird. We hear a lot of the wood birds motif and Wotan is still there dressed as the wanderer. And he, uh, we're going to skip a lot of this scene too, because the main action of this act comes in the final scene. And Wotan asks how he got there. Um, even though Wotan kind of knows Again, there's more Wagnerian recounting of what happened. He slayed the dragon, whatever. 
Siegfried in this whole conversation is kind of arrogant, as we've seen him to be very... He's naive, but also arrogant. And he's not really listening to Votan. He makes fun of him for missing an eye. If you'll remember, Votan has this uh, eye patch. Um, Votan keeps telling him, like, you know, I'm, I'm more knowledgeable than you might think. I'm, I'm older. I've seen a lot. Um, he, he even says, you know, if Siegfried knew who he was... He wouldn't make fun of him. Um, and he mentions that he's always loved the Velsungs, this race that he actually created. Siegfried doesn't know that. Um, but it's a weird it's a weird situation because Wotan loves this hero of Siegfried, his like the product of all of his his work and, and uh, kind of backdoor dealings that he's been trying to pull off to get him to this spot but also Siegfried's kind of arrogant and like a kid that you've lost control of so we hear Wotan's anguish this uh motif that we heard a lot of in Dust Rheingold uh when he's when he's kind of dealing with with Siegfried in this way so then the music ramps up and at the end of the scene Wotan gets in Siegfried's way which is kind of the final test because Siegfried wants to run off to the magic rock where Brunhilde is. That's his task. That's where the wood bird was leading him. And uh, Wotan gets in his way. And this is like the final test for Wotan. Does he really uh, not know fear? And he thinks, you know, if I stand in his way with my massive spear, uh, that will be the last test. So at one point he looks up at the rock where Brunhilde is. And I want to just listen to a little bit of this music because it will remind us of exactly where we left off at the end of Valkyrie when Wotan left Brynhilde here. It's, it's very much the same music. So let's listen to this recounting of the magic fire mountaintop music here at the end of, of Siegfried. spot again we just heard that uh that kind of magic fire music and i'm curious if you can i'm going to do a little light motif identification here and for this one i don't think you even have to have listened to to anything from the ring cycle before here's the light motif in question do you recognize that from anywhere Bride of the Valkyries. Excellent. Excellent call. So Woo! that is our leitmotif of the Valkyries, and specifically one Valkyrie. Who might that be uh, referring to? Do you have any ideas? Um, it's Brunhilde, isn't it? It is. She is, after all, a Valkyrie, and that is one of her primary motifs. So two for two so far. I'm liking it. Right. So we mm -hmm. hear that in there as he looks up, and we hear also that magic fire music, um, which is that kind of flickering sound that we hear that's the circle of fire encircling Brunhilde. So uh, they look up, they see that, but then Wotan blocks his path with, with his spear. His spear is this big, powerful instrument. It was used to, uh, you know, it's been used to, to slay all these 
incredible beasts, whatever, and it, it represents his justice. We hear a lot of that spear motif. And then uh, let's hear the moment when Siegfried actually uh, says, you know, he, he thinks that, for some reason, he thinks that the Wanderer is um, his father's foe. He says, I found my father's foe, get out of my way, and he destroys the spear. Or at least he's kind of got this attitude of like, I'm doing this right now for my father. Um, and so accordingly, I'll play this clip, but we hear the Velsung motif that we've heard so many times that represents not only Siegfried, but his parents. And then the moment when he destroys the actual spear, this is a pretty epic uh, moment here when he takes his sword of Nothung and psh, destroys the spear. So here's that, that clip. So in that clip, we, we heard, um, we hear Siegfried, uh, you know, he goes after Wotan. He, we hear the sword motif as he takes out his sword. And then we hear the crumbling of Wotan's spirit actually musically disintegrates. We hear the whole thing, boom, 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 and boom, 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 it crumbles. Um, but I have a... We're going to see your two for two so far. We'll put you on the spot again. Our listeners can also play along. I want to see how your memory is because we just discussed this one a little bit ago, but when Votan comes in and sings again after his spear has been shattered, we hear this. And then we hear this. And I'm curious, Hannah, what's, uh, what do we have there? It's an inverse. It's an inversion, and specifically, do you remember what this is? Um, I don't remember what the names <laughs> were. Don't the names, it's, but... Oh, it's, oh, it's the two light motifs, and one escalates, and then one de-escalates. Exactly, and it's one of them goes up, one of them goes down, and this falling down one is the downfall of the gods. That's the mm. motif that we have right there. And we hear it again as Siegfried shatters the spear of Wotan. So this is yet another implication that the events that we've, we've set forward here are going to result in the downfall of the gods. So he says, uh, 
you know, go on. Wotan says to Siegfried, go on, I can't withstand the, um, he's, he's defeated him uh, in a way and he's shattered his spear. And so let's listen to the, the end of this scene just because it's very epic and Siegfried, Siegfried plays his horn as he walks through the fire. We hear tons of motifs, um, including his horn, including fire. Let's listen to this, this epic moment at the end of scene two. Tons of tons of Siegfried's horn. Also, again, at the end of this orchestral interlude, we hear the downfall motif yet again. So, um, this supposedly heroic and happy scene that we've been waiting for for the entire opera of Siegfried is shaded, tinted with this color of, uh, you know, there's the downfall of the gods is is imminent here. So, then we have this. This long passage, very interesting passage, where the viola and then the violin, several instruments play just by themselves, these kind of meandering lines. It's very lonely music. Um, we hear the destiny or fate motif several times. Uh, but then Siegfried arrives at this haven of bliss, he calls it. And we hear this very kind of ethereal music. I'll just play a few seconds of this where he actually arrives um, at this rock. And this is, I think, one of the areas where, where Wagner is writing music that we haven't really, uh, we haven't really heard from him before. This is maybe something that he developed over the course of 12 years. Here's this kind of ethereal music that he writes when, when Siegfried actually arrives on the top of this mountain. Um, he sees Brunhilde's horse first, and then he actually sees Brunhilde. And we hear a lot of the music that we heard. The stage instruction here is actually to have this lit in exactly the same way that uh, it was at the end of Valkyrie. So um, when Wotan left Brunhilde here, so we're supposed to be in exactly the same scene. Um, and... We hear the Wotan's farewell music, the same music that we heard in that scene. Hannah, I wanted to ask you, actually, because it was a big, um, 
this was a big deal in the in the classical music world and uh, I, there were some articles about it I actually got to see one of the productions but the Met about six years ago if I'm remembering correctly did a a production of The Ring and when they did it they had these um, they had this one set that they used for the entire thing which was this massive device that had these like rotating metal um, metal kind of plates or something like that that creaked and everybody complained because it was a loud set in the middle of the uh, of the opera have you ever in, in your experiences in theater did you ever do any sort of like set design or mm. were you involved in that process at all yeah when I was in college I took a set design class um, as a part of my theater minor and in that set design class we had to work on multiple productions during that semester um, and then I was in I don't think I was in that class, but when I was in a play um, called Eurydice by Sarah Roll, this is what sticks out to me the most about um, set production, is uh, in in the play there's a elevator on set that rains, and there's also a pool of water on stage for the purpose of the play. And I worked stage crew when I was working on that play. And I had to make the elevator rain and open the elevator doors. And oh my gosh, it was probably one of like the most intense, stressful sequences that I have ever had to do. So I would have to open the elevator doors, run up the ladder, and turn the rain maker on. And the actor stood in the elevator with an umbrella while it was raining, and then I had to turn it off at a specific time, and I was getting cued by the stage manager up in the light box telling me, like, rain, go. Oh my gosh, it was so much work, but it was so much fun. So yes, that, that's been my experience with set design. It's incredible. Well, I was just, I mean, I, I think about this in the context of, about in this opera, and um, just in general, like, if you were actually going to create the set of of everything that you would need to do for the ring cycle it just seems like a incredibly daunting task to have mm. like a cave and a mountaintop and a, have all these things so um it's i i don't necessarily know how i feel about these like kind of minimalistic sets i would encourage our listeners though to to go check out i'm sure it's on youtube it was robert lepage's production of the ring at the met you you won't miss it it's these this huge metal device that has leds but the the benefit of it was that there were no set changes for the mm. entire rain cycle. It was just this one one machine. Yeah, it's an expensive department set design is. So no and kidding. especially at the Met, oh my gosh, what a badass crew the Met has. They yeah. I mean they're putting on multiple productions all at the same time. Wow. It's incredible. Mm. Yeah, it really is incredible. So in any case, um, we hear Votan's farewell music as we arrive on this mountaintop. And so first, Siegfried sees this armored figure, and he thinks that it's a, a man, a knight. And so he, he takes off the helmet, he cuts off the breastplate, and then this key moment, you know, this was still in the 1850s, and uh, gender roles were, were pretty strictly defined and so 
there's, there's this moment, this is not a man, and that, that you know, is the clue for Siegfried that he can actually uh, fall in love with this, this woman, because anything else would be completely out of the question at the time. But let's hear that moment when he recognizes this isn't a man, and right at that moment, he sees it's a woman, he sees it's Brunhilde, and what it turns out to, to, to what turns out to be the case, which which we haven't really realized up till this point, is that Siegfried in his entire upbringing, he was brought up by Mima, he's encountered Alberic, he's encountered the dragon Fafner, he's encountered Wotan. He has never encountered a woman before. And so he encounters a woman right here for the first time, and he feels fear. This is his moment. He's never felt fear before, but this is the first time he actually feels fear. And so he uh He's actually scared. <laughs> what do you? What, what's so, that just gives me so much joy. I don't yeah. just. Uh, if more men could fear women more, I think society would be much different. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I mean, listen. I understand the feeling here of uh, encountering a woman and being, you know, petrified. <laughs> that being said. <laughs> Let's not necessarily look to Siegfried as a model of male behavior. The guy yeah. is, um, uh, yeah. Let, let's 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 look for some other role models because he's. <laughs> I wouldn't say that he's the twenty first century's model citizen. In any case, this important moment in the ring. Let's listen to this where he says, "This isn't a man," and he feels fear for the first time. So there you go, some some fear music, some frantic music. He actually here's another one for you, Hannah. He um, he starts calling out and he's uh, <laughs> he starts screaming. He goes, "Mother, help me! I don't know what to do." And he's calling out to his. It's kind of sad because he never Aww. knew his mother, but uh, he's supposed to be this. Maybe this is the type of sensitivity that we're looking for in 21st century masculine role models. Is that he? Uh, feels totally comfortable screaming out to his, his mother to help him in this, this moment of fear. Hmm. No, that's sweet. <laughs> sad, but sad, because he never knew his mother. Yeah, I guess we can look at it that way. I mean, he's had... He's... Or did he... Did he fe- this is me really digging into it. Did he feel as if maybe he had died or was dying or was speaking to the ghost of his mother? Also possible. Um, hmm. You know, that's... that. That yeah, I mean that it could be, you know. Or did he think that? Did he know who Brunhilde was? I know that he'd never seen a woman before, but did he know of her? Yes. Like yeah. Okay. But but maybe there's a kind of symbolism because he is like on this mountaintop. It's very ethereal music. This could be kind of a. He's meeting Brunhilde for the first time, but also like in heaven or something like that. It's Mm. he's similarly meeting a woman figure for the first time. And this leads actually well into what happens because um, we'll, we'll get there in a sec. First, there's a lot of frantic music as he wonders, how do I wake her up? Um, he keeps calling out for his mother. He tries to wake her up. Um, and we hear the destiny motif again, or that fate motif. 
And then we get to the moment where, so he decides, okay, what, what should I do? Let me just plant a kiss on her. That's Bill. <laughs> you don't like this idea? No. You know, like, see, this is where he's not a particularly good model citizen here. This is where it just shows how dated yeah. the piece is. Because it is the, such a fairy tale trope to go up and assault a woman uh-huh. by kissing her without her consent. I'm about, exactly. I'm, I've gotten up on the soapbox. No, but let's, uh, let's call come it on. Let's call it what it is. I mean, uh, regardless of her reaction, let's uh, let's call it what it is. It does turn out to be uh, important for her because she has been put in this magic sleep, and that's how how long had she been in this magic sleep? Because during the time of Corona and quarantine, <laughs> I would understand if it'd been a while for her. <laughs> I think it's been like eighty years. So. Oh, okay. Well, then yeah. anyone could w- like wake me up by kissing me after eighty years. There you go. I so, don't know. So there maybe you go. not. So lucky for her, she gets um, not, may or maybe not so lucky for her, she gets non-consensually. I don't know. <laughs> in any case, everyone should go listen to this moment. I encourage all of our listeners in the recording below. Three hours, 23 minutes, and 57 seconds into this recording because it's a super long clip and I'm not going to play all of it here. But go and listen to that if you can because this is the moment that she wakes up. Um, she opens her eyes. She greets the light for the first time. We'll listen to a little bit of it right now. But go and listen to the whole thing because this also this is very important music. It's great music. And this will come back at the beginning of Gotodamara in the next opera. So if you can go listen to that, we'll play a little bit of this clip, but we can't play the whole like five minutes. But here's a little taste of, of Brunhilde waking up for the first time. ecstatic aria-like section by Brunhilde. She talks about, she mentions to Siegfried how she is the one who protected his mother. So Hannah, here's your 80 years. She was around to, to shield Siegfried's mother. And she says, here's what we were talking about earlier. Brunhilde alludes to this because she says, your mother is gone, but I'm a better replacement, basically. So don't even, don't even worry about her. Um, you don't need to call for your mother because nothing to fear I'm a better replacement I don't don't know about that either it's a little questionable for someone you're falling in love with Mm. yeah I wouldn't describe myself to any romantic partner as like mom 2.0 yeah exactly I think I think (laughs) uh, 
That was definitely a line written by a man. Yeah, rookie mistake by Brunhilde or Megan <laughs> In any case, there's we'll get some more exposure in just a second to Wagner's own uh, love trysts here because Siegfried feels here's more of his uh, non-21st century language. He, he feels like he's lost his manhood because, because he has this fear now. So he's scared and he's no longer the same man that, that he was before. Um, and he's concerned about this, this fear that he suddenly feels. Uh, Brunhilde is slowly gaining her senses and she, she's just looking around her. She sees her horse, she sees her weapons. Um, and Siegfried embraces her and they're starting to fall in love. And this is the moment when she realizes that he is not actually a god and she is going to have to renounce her godhood to actually marry him. So this is something that you know, this is a trope in, in mythology and in stories all over the place. She's a god. She's immortal. She's going to have to renounce all of that if she, she wants to love him. So if naturally she is, is hesitant. Um, she says that he should leave. Like, you know, this is... Uh, uh, she, she, she's starting to love him, but, like, you, you should go away because I don't know if I can renounce my godhood. I think it's, it's pretty fast to renounce your godhood after meeting someone for like 12 seconds. But mm-hmm. that's the thought. She's, <laughs> she's, she's debating it here. And so then we hear some music that is really um, more love music and it's representative of this is a new idea that's meant to show her kind of coming around to the idea that she is going to give up her godhood and fall in love with Siegfried. And this is, of course, the moment that Wagner, the egotist himself, chose to put the music that he wrote for his own wife on his wife's birthday. It was a piece that came to be called Siegfried Idol. He wrote this for his wife's birthday as a kind of celebration of their love. But uh, I've got a real doozy for you here, Hannah. So the wife or... I'm not even sure that they were married at this point, but the, the lover that Wagner was writing this for was Cosima, eventually Wagner, um, but originally Cosima von Bülow. Now, Cosima von Bülow was Liszt's daughter, Franz Liszt, very important composer, who was kind of the intellectual figurehead for a lot of Wagnerian ideals that was called the New German School, programmatic music. A lot of Wagner's ideas semi-came from Liszt. So this is her daughter. But more importantly, she was originally married to and had kids with Hans von Bülow, who was a very famous conductor, who was Wagner's preferred conductor, very close friends, who conducted the premieres of a bunch of Wagner's operas. So... Wagner oh. then decided to have an affair with uh, Cosima von Bülow and eventually marry her. And on top of that, von Bülow was so enamored with Wagner's talent that he was like, okay, that's fine with me. No. Uh, <laughs> you're just... Just trading off this woman? Oh yes. my God. Yes. Oh, I'm gonna have to read about that after this. It. I mean, it's nuts. There's an <gasps> entire BBC miniseries on Wagner, which is highly recommended. You would like it, Hannah. It has Richard Burton. Mm. It has Laurence Olivier in a minor oh. role. Um, 
Uh, yeah. Really, okay. uh, it's the stuff that you could you could only think would be written in romance, not bad <laughs> romance novels, but in yeah. this was Wagner's life. So in any case, let's listen to a little bit of the music from, from Siegfried Idol that makes its way here into the opera, and it's kind of also, it's the oldest trick in the book. You can see it from an egotist like Wagner. He wants to include this music that he wrote for his wife, or vice versa, to show his wife, look, I'm putting the music... This is how much I love you. I'm including this in my great masterpiece of Siegfried. And of course, the first kid that they had, they named Siegfried. Talk about real Williams. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of egotism here, a lot of uh, uh, real, real self-indulgence. But in any case, let's listen to the music of, of Siegfried Idol here. So there is the, uh, there's the Siegfried Idol music, the love music from uh, this scene where Brunhilde is, is hesitant. Um, Hannah, you had a thought about <laughs> yeah. this romantic tryst that we were talking about. Yeah. Siegfried Wagner? Siegfried Wagner, that's his name. <laughs> never, probably never stood a chance. I mean, what was his life like? You know, I, I think, uh, I don't know exactly what his life was like, but he actually became a relatively famous musician, and he was like the first director, along with his mother, of the Bayreuth Festival. Mm -hmm. So mostly, I think, piggybacking off of his father's success, his name, um, kind of just like, it's like those kids of famous people. There's two yeah. things that you can do. You can either totally distance yourself, or you can just like try to be them 2.0. <laughs> and I think in the case of Siegfried Wagner, he tried to be them 2.0. Well, does I was looking at the the Bayreuth Festival yesterday. Yeah. Is that how you say it? Bayreuth. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, does one of Wagner's descendants run it currently? Yes, that is part of Bayreuth. Is that a Wagner descendant always runs it? And so, wow. um, it's a highly political place. It's, it's a very weird place. It's kind of cultish, but, um, huh. if any of our listeners are so convinced that they want to go see a ring cycle at Bayreuth in the flesh for themselves, then I would encourage them to get on the waiting list now because it's like six years to get tickets. So in any case, we hear the Siegfried Idol music. Brunhilde is still a little bit hesitant, um, to, to fall in love with, with Siegfried, but then we should listen to the moment, the very important moment, when she finally says, Shh, okay, here's another super outdated one. She basically has this long thing where she says, I will be yours, and he says, you will be mine. She says, I will be yours, but in any case, like, if we push past that, again, just, we got a, a unfortunately, incredibly outdated stuff in here, but the point is, in 21st century terms, she has uh, willfully accepted giving up her, her, her godhood, and she wants to be mortal and live with Siegfried instead. Hmm. 
yeah, it's uh, the language we we. Uh, it's fine. I'll take that. You'll take I'll that. I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, it's not great. It do- he doesn't say it though. He doesn't say, "And I am yours." Oh no, that's out of the question. It's uh, boo. Uh, it's you're mine and I'm yours. But in any case, yeah, I guess you could say I'm yours if the other person is going to say I'm yours. But but it's very much a possessive type of, mm. of culture. So in any case, let's listen to this important moment when she finally says, I'm going to forego my godhood and uh, we can be together in this mortal life. So that's that's kind of our last key musical moment. Siegfried says that his fear now has faded. He somehow the love um, and the acceptance of the fact that now they're both mortals and they're going to go through mortal life together has made him uh, comfortable enough that he's his fear has subsided. So it was a short-lived fear along with a short-lived uh, courtship, but now they are together. And let's just listen to the closing of this entire opera, the last minute or so. The only way to describe it is ecstatic. I mean, if there's one thing to listen to from this act, it would be the last... It's overindulgent, but the last 20 minutes or so of the opera, um, it's just, a, a, you know, classic Wagnerian ecstatic music after ecstatic music, overly indulgent. Um, so here's the last minute, the cap stone to all of this stuff that we've heard so far um and this also forecasts some of the stuff that we'll hear in Götterdammerung so here's the the closing of act three It. that's the end of the uh the music that we hear i should mention too that the uh the text that they sing right at the end laughing let us be lost with laughter go down to death so they're kind of they're accepting that death is on the horizon because they're both mortals now and of course we may know that that spoiler alert that may come sooner rather than later so 
with that, we cap off our Act 3 of Siegfried and indeed the entire opera of Siegfried. Hannah, any final thoughts about Siegfried, about Act 3, about Wagner, about uh, outdated uh, 19th century gender roles? <laughs> any, any thoughts? Yeah, if I can get past the 19th century gender roles, it's nice. It's laughing at death for love. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I'm in support. Um, and they're supposed to be. I mean, I think he, they're paint. They're painted very much as uh, heroic and and uh, protagonist characters here. And hmm. and the, the one of the major themes of the Ring is that the most powerful force is is love. And we will mm-hmm. see that over and over again, certainly in Götterdämmerung. And so uh, through all of this like Germanic, outdated sludge, there's actually maybe some some good stuff in there. Hmm. In any case, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back uh, very soon. I hope that you've been enjoying listening to a little Wagner during this, uh, this time. Maybe it's been helping you with, with your German, uh, <laughs> even in a sort of immersive process. I think it's been doing that for me, just hearing people singing this at the top of their lungs as loud as they possibly can. <laughs> is a good way to as good a way to learn German as ever. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I mean it's been it's been so nice to connect and, and listen to this together. And I think if I get unmotivated again with Rosetta Stone, I will throw money at tickets for Bayreuth and have six years to get uh, expert training in German. <laughs> listen, if you need a commitment mechanism, do it right now. Get on the waitlist <laughs> and then just that's your deadline. By yep. the time that you get a ticket You've got to have learned German because mm. my guess, I've never been to Bayreuth, but my guess, they don't have subtitles. Oh, no, I doubt it. We're doing this in pure German, and if you don't understand, that's your problem. So that's an excellent <laughs> goal, actually. Yeah. I'd encourage all of us. Listen, let's just have an entire, let's have everyone from attention to detail go <laughs> right now and get their names on the waiting list for Bayreuth so that like seven years from now, we'll all go together. Be, yeah, it'll be this Ooh. big, this big uh, group of attention to detail listeners who overruns Bayreuth and is listening attentively, hearing ideas, mapping. How sweet would that be? I just hope Corona doesn't exist then. <laughs> wow. If it does, then we're in a really bad spot. So, <laughs> in any case, thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us as always, and we will talk to you very soon. For all of our listeners, thanks for joining us, and we will be back soon with the final and my favorite opera, Götterdammerung. So, see you soon. Bye.